0: Hello there, welcome to the Juice Dispatch It's a local civic news project based out of CJUCE 92.5 Which you are listening to currently, if you are hearing this voice Today is Sunday, February 11th. My name is Zach McCann-Armitage. I'm usually joined by my co-host Asad Shishti, who's away this week. And what we have going on today is mostly focused on Deshinta Center for Research and Learning's event series that happened a week or two ago. And we, we have some long form interviews I did with Leanne Charlie. And Dr. Kim Tallbear. Uh, Leanne was organizing, and uh, Dr. Tallbear was uh, the main guest of that event series. And then I'm excited to do the first segment of a series I've been working on called Development Observations or Devo Obs, in which each segment in the series will focus on a different development or site in town um sometimes specifically focused on a project or building or otherwise uh, on a specific landlord or developer or a contractor company involved in a building process around town so yeah that's exciting stuff that we'll get to um but first yeah dashinta Deshinta center for research and learning Leanne Charlie um, was the core force and organizer behind the Of the Land and Water event series, which happened January 31st to February 2nd. And these, this was three days of events that celebrate Indigenous sexualities, genders, and ways of being which was keynoted at a main uh, evening event of the series on Thursday, February 1st, by Sisseton Wapoden Oyate Academic, a scholar of indigenous sexualities and techno-science and society, uh, Dr. Kim TallBear. Um, just to give you a, a sense of the evening, it was kind of structured thusly because we do end up talking about the structure and and uh, the other performers um, a little bit in the interviews. Um, so Dr. TallBear opened with the first part of the talk, um, which was narrated in the voice of this uh, figure, Is, which is just IZ, uh, a stand-in for the discipline of Indigenous studies and its struggle in the larger systems of academic institutions, followed by that. Leanne Charlie then read a a short story or a poem. Uh, Janine Free Najuli then performed a sound art performance art piece. And then Dr. Talbert took the podium once more to continue the narrative of Iz's various flings and attempts to connect with other more traditional disciplines, such as science. And then there was um, a drag performance by M.X. Wolverine, who's Tanché Redvers. Um, then there's the final section of Dr. Talbert's talk, um, which culminated in this telling of an experience at a academic conference in California where like elation and optimism and technology and possibility, um, were promptly, uh, scooped away from is by the three old white men keynote speakers who took the stage at the conference. Um, and then, uh, lastly, uh, Ames Val, Bow Rider did a uh, drag performance number to close out the evening's events. So first, you'll hear my interview with Leanne. Uh, this happened before the event itself. Yeah, we talked about Deshinta and talked about Leanne's sort of idea and concept for the evening. So without further ado, here we go.
1: Um, my name is Leanne Charlie. I'm Wolf Clan of the Tal Cho Hudan Big River people. Um, we're Northern Toshone speaking people. Um, our traditional territory is around Carmack, which is in south central Yukon. And I was raised by my mom, who's second generation of Danish and Icelandic ancestry. And I was born here in Whitehorse, grew up away, and um, have been here for the last seven years. And in the last two and a half years, I've been a full-time faculty member with the Chinta Center for Research and Learning, um, which is a, an organization, headquarters are in Yellowknife, but we do um, programming uh, in different regions in the north. Uh, we offer accredited land-based programming, basically Indigenous university indigenous studies courses in a bush camp setting and yeah i've been a faculty member with them and a board i've been a board member with them for five years and a faculty member for um two and a half
0: right in terms of my knowledge of dishinta did they previously not have a lot of uh things happening in the yukon or was it more um nwt based but in the last like five years it seems like it's shifted
1: yeah, that's correct. Um, most of our programming has been in NWT, and specifically with the Yellowknife Dene around um, around Yellowknife, and then and some like we've done programming with the Day Cho and in the Beaufort Delta area, and then I think in the last maybe four years, most of the Yukon-based like, programming has been with the Ross River Dene Council. Um, in, in Ross River, we've done. I think we did one accredited course up in the Mackenzie Mountains, um, and um, quite a bit of non-accredited programming like youth culture camps and things like that. Uh, but since I was hired and I'm Whitehorse-based, um, there's been more detention um, programming in the Whitehorse area.
0: Yeah, it's great. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So this most recent event series is called Of the Land and Water, Celebrating Indigenous Sexualities, Genders, and Ways of Being. Um, how did this series come about and come together?
1: Um, that's a really good question. Uh, definitely, I think organically and in a way, in a way that a lot of the Chinta programming comes to be, and that's through relationship um and just sort of being present in the community relating with folks and hearing what interests are what sort of things are missing and desired and then trying to fill some of those gaps um i think i personally had been introduced to dr kim tallbear's work and dr kim tallbear is one of our guests um for the event series and just reached out to her to see if she would be interested in coming up and sharing her work with us. And it just seemed right to put her work into dialogue with what was already happening here. Um, so I reached out to Ames Val, who is a local Dene creative, big part of the drag scene. And just said, Kim's interested in coming. What do you, what should we do? <laughs> and Ames had tons of ideas. And then I did the same with Red um, Redbirds who is like a, a friend of the Chinta, um, born in Hay River, raised in Hay River, lives in Toronto, also Dene, also um, into the drag scene. And I did the same thing, said Ames and I are looking at hosting Kim, what do you want to do? And then it just got bigger, reached out to Janine, trina Julie, said the same thing. And then just, it started to have a gravitational pull of its own and different folks have um, sort of been invited in and are, yeah, getting excited about about what's going to happen this week.
0: Yeah. What is uh, Janine's, um, like, what are they doing?
1: Uh, oh, yeah. So Janine and I played phone tag for three months. Okay. Um, and that's why you don't see them on any of the uh, advertising, unfortunately. Um, it ended up being a last-minute exchange of texts and a quick airplane ticket purchase. They're here. Um, and they are going to perform on Thursday night at the keynote address alongside, um, Kim, uh, Ames and Tan Chai.
0: Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I guess this is, so why was it important to include like drag performances within the program rather than like just a cut and dry com- conversation or panel?
1: Oh, for sure. I think Kim's work is just, she's actually, like, she's rooting a lot of her work very much in, um, like, in theory and in the academic sort of language and scene. And uh, I think it's really important for Tachinta programming to make, to just demonstrate how Indigenous knowledge production takes so many different forms. So it's important to me to sort of make Kim's work accessible She's extremely prolific in um, the amount of work that she's shared out in the public realm, uh, like in podcasts and interviews and her own writing, blogging, tweeting. Um, But I wanted to set up an opportunity to put some of her concepts and theorizing uh, into conversation with the creative scene here. Mm. Um, so, uh, So her work is about relationship about the plurality of love and relationship and caring and community and really sort of like holding up our collective place-based ways of being in the world and that like when you hear Ames talk about relationship and community building and how they talk about what sort of drives their performing. Same with Tanshai, like there's a lot of thinking about this revitalization of our like collective ways of being. And that, that's exactly what Kim's talking about. And mm. it just made sense to put um, this sort of like embodied um, performance art into conversation with, with some of the thinking and the work that Kim's doing around relationship and relating.
0: Mm. That's cool. Yeah. Um, you kind of maybe touched on this a little bit in your answer just now, but, um, like the themes and topics of this event, like indigenous sexuality and gender expression, how do these feed into Dichinta's larger goals and mandate, would you say?
1: Um, well, Dichinta's larger mandate is, it's about getting people back on the land. Um. I think that's first and foremost. It's like a return to land project and land returning to the people project. Um, And we were using, uh, we're trying to be responsive sort of at a very high level to the needs of um, Indigenous students, Indigenous people in the North who want to pursue post-secondary education. So we're bringing post-secondary education to them. and then also acknowledging the fact that there's so much knowledge already in our communities. Um, so a lot of our education, our like teaching team, are like elders, bush professors, um, people who are just comfortable on the land, and uh, harvesters. So it's about like being together in community in the ways that like our ancestors would recognize in Dene ways, in Anubialuit ways. Um, in Gena ways, like in ways that we're just we're supposed to be broadly in Indigenous ways, and the land is always guiding us in that. And it when we listen and when we follow, um, it's very clear that like a diversity of life and love and living um, is is already happening in the land around us, and I think. At least for me, it's important that um, Ditchinta is responsive to um, to that as well, and that and I think that means that we have a responsibility to um, elevate and celebrate the work that in, the Indigenous queer community has been doing this whole time, and ensuring the visibility of um, the work that um, and commitments that folks have been making um, as far as like really intentional community building really intentional ways of living and loving and caring for one another. I think this is really reflective in, like when I think about how my, like ancestral family networks would have worked, um, it makes sense that we start to think about, like we look, we turn to people like Kim who are talking about polyamory and um, decolonizing, um, relationships and being extremely critical of things like compulsory compulsory monogamy um, and the nuclear family and demonstrating how this is a pillar of colonization mm-hmm. and we see folks um especially in the queer community um who've been fighting um to just live and love how they how, how people want to how we want to um, and i think these are similar conversations that tim is making more broadly using the language of polyamory and that we at the Chinta, I think I've always been using around the language of like family and community building, um, that we're all speaking the same language. And I think it makes sense. We're all critical of the same forces that have created fragments in our communities um, mm. and our families and our relationships. Um, so it makes sense that we, we do this work together. <laughs> we hold each other up.
0: Yeah. And is that um, what you were saying about relationships being reflective of the land and water? Mm-hmm. Um, is, that, is that kind of where the title comes from? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. This idea like, of the land and water. Yeah. I, I think this is like a phrase I've used in my own writing and thinking. And I, I feel a little bit caught off guard with the question because... Oh. Uh, no, it's totally fine. It's good. I like it. I just, um, I just like, went with it. And because it felt good to my heart, and it felt good in a, like an all-encompassing way. And yeah, the idea of just like these sources, like water and land, seasons, um, the cyclical nature of um, how the, the shifts that are taking place around us, um, the diversity of life, how life like intersects, and like, these larger networks, and we're we're part of that. Um, and it makes it a lot easier if we just use the land and water as like a guiding force in all of this. It just makes sense that we just fall into line with that again. And and then it makes sense that, um, I feel like we can push the conversation beyond, um, beyond maybe hangups and that we find in identity politics and around English language around identity. If we can just be like, we're off the land and water, that's that simple. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Cool. Those were all my questions. Uh, Okay. Yeah. Thank you so much. So again, that was uh, Leanne Charlie uh, talking before the event. And then um, this interview will be uh, (laughs) Dr. uh, TallBear about a week after the event. Anecdote here. I ended up, uh, trying to interview, uh, Dr. TallBear at the event, um, which I attended. And then, um, yeah, the audio didn't end up working. So, uh, she was kind enough to, uh, offer me a a second opportunity to interview them. Um, again, (laughs) something with my cell phone was interfering with my something in there so there's like a there's an annoying buzz that i could not get rid of um so apologies for that in this interview and my uh technical woes but um here is that interview
2: of the Faculty of Native Studies at the University of Alberta. I'm also a Canada Research Chair in Indigenous Peoples, Technoscience, and Society, and I am a citizen of the Sisseton Wahpeton Oyate, which is a Dakota Nation in eastern South Dakota, in the U.S.
0: Um, so, your talk was framed around this kind of allegorical figure of is. I'm curious about the element of play and what you said was making fun. Um, so why, why is that important to your work and has there been like a development over time of incorporating that more and more?
2: Of the making fun sort of method? Yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs>
2: um, well I, I created this character to write an essay back in 2016 for a Global Indigenous Studies volume. Um, why I decided to do that. I think I just didn't want to write another typical academic talk, but um, I did want to weigh in on some of the complications of uh, being in indigenous studies. At that time in 2016, I had was processing having left uh, native studies as my first job in Arizona and going to an environmental studies program, uh, then moving into anthropology. So I was really processing the different fields that I'd been in. And one of the ways in which I could be, I think, more incisive and critical was to take on uh, this character and to speak through through their voice. Um, And I was also able to, you know, make jokes and make, you know, and make fun, which is um, a good way to communicate uh, difficult lessons. I think Uh, if people can laugh, it might be a little bit easier for them to hear the critique. Um, And it was just more fun to write. And then I ended up. reviving the character in a 2021 essay that was the basis of this talk at De Chinta, Close Encounters of the Colonial Kind. And in that essay, um, I'm using that character's voice to talk about an encounter I had as an indigenous studies scholar with uh, scientists and engineers who are listening for signals from quote unquote, intelligent life in deep space or attempting to find those signals. So, um, I use the voice as well to comment on the politics of uh, science and technology as it engages with Indigenous people.
0: Right. Um, Is the uh, reception of that figure different (laughs) in in the different contexts that you've presented it?
2: And I don't necessarily hear the negative uh, responses. No. I think, in general, when I give a talk, whether it's at a, you know, an indigenous uh, organization or indigenous studies uh, meeting, or whether it's at—I also speak in anthropology and science studies venues, uh, feminist studies, a lot of humanities venues. Um, I tend to get a positive response to it because I think it's got some funny moments in it there may very well be people, especially scientists, who are a little uncomfortable with what I'm saying, but, you know, they don't necessarily always uh, vocalize that in the middle of an audience that is, in general, responding positively to the talk. Yeah, totally. But, I mean, certainly on my academic work, the anthropology of science, I've done, I'm very, um, very direct that I'm a native woman who studies usually white male scientists, because that's who has been at the forefront of doing a lot of the kind of high-profile scientific work, it's often straight white men. Um, You know, people can be a little uneasy when I, outside of this character, just as me, in an academic talk, make those kinds of statements. They're, They're shocked, and that's why they're important to make them for the shock value. People should not be shocked that an indigenous woman might study white men. Why would they be shocked? Yeah. <laughs> you know, why, why wouldn't we do that? Yeah. Um, so, but they are shocked because the assumption is that we don't study, we get studied. And that's exactly what I'm
0: pushing back against. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. So, you've had about a week and a bit since your visit to Whitehorse and the evening talk slash performance. I wonder if you have any lasting takeaways from your experience here.
2: My, you know, I, I didn't assume Whitehorse was as big a town as it was, so that was interesting. <laughs> I mean, it's still not a huge town, but it's bigger than I thought. Um, I you know, I really enjoyed myself. I was there when it had warmed up a little bit, so it was probably not any colder than Edmonton. So that was you know, the weather took it easy on me. Um, I really. I really enjoyed meeting all of the queer, and two-spirit Indigenous people there who are so creative and doing really interesting, creative work. It it seemed like a pretty vibrant scene for a not very big city. And so, and then just listening to, I got to spend time at a kind of community dinner and the uh, fireside chat we had, I think, was it over at the Elks Lodge? Yeah. it was really great to listen to people talk about the community and the work that they're trying to do to build community and the, the way that, uh, indigenous people from that territory, um, you know, circulated in and out of Whitehorse and back into other, uh, villages or towns in the territory and the way that they're trying to balance their connection to land and place and their home communities with a desire to have a, um, Well, I mean, to be frank, a a two-spirit kind of creative community that they might not necessarily have in their small, um, the places that they come from. And so it seemed that Whitehorse was a really great place for people to come together from, from across the territory. And there were also Indigenous people from other provinces and territories who had come and really felt like it was a good place to be and build community especially around uh, the kind of creative things that they're doing so I really and it wasn't just creative I mean one of the things I've noticed is a lot of indigenous people uh, who do art or intellectual work are also doing activist work around um, environmental uh, topics or land-based cultural revitalization. So we had a lot of conversations that crossed what you would call different disciplines in the settler academy. But one of the things that, that I push against and I think Indigenous intellectuals push against is the dividing of the world into disciplinary categories, right? Mm. Um, so that those were very interesting conversations for me.
0: Mm, yeah. I, um, just on that note, like I, I wanted to ask about sort of uh, your thoughts on kind of reconciling activism. How do you reconcile like that kind of energy with like uh, immediate, wanting immediate and effective change in the larger culture with sort of the kind of slower, more self forgiving, incremental process of change, which seemed to be sort of the perspective from is in the talk confessing their like imperfections and stuff. Uh.
2: I mean, I'm not an activist, so you know, I or an organizer. That that's not where my skill set lies. Um so I've never I, I just don't and I'm not sure some of the most experienced organizers I know would say that they expect change to come quickly. I think once they've been out in the field doing that work, they know that it's a lifetime of work and many lifetimes of work, right? so and i think also for me being the age that i am i know the older you grow i think you understand that change sometimes can happen very quickly but it's not really happened quickly there have been many uh people preparing the way for what sometimes seems like a sudden or revolutionary change um and so i i wonder if it's more a matter of experience um and realizing you know whatever the work is that you do you know whether you're doing academic work or organizing work or creative work and and i think many indigenous people cross many of those boundaries um that you learn through experience that sometimes change takes time and that it also takes multiple people i I really reject this idea that one person can change the world um it's never just one person it's always uh, you might somebody might come to the forefront in a movement or in a particular moment they might have said or done something that was a catalyst but there's always been a lot of preparatory work and foundation building and community building to get to the point where change is possible I think so I don't know if that answers your question um,
0: yeah. yeah definitely I, yeah. Yeah. Um, one theme that's kind of stayed with me from the night was this idea of giving and uh open openness i guess as itself kind of being a form of subversion uh janine free and julie um ripped open their shirt and then pulled tufts of caribou fur and then offered it to the audience yeah um and like leanne charlie's short story the protagonist allows this white woman slash explorer figure to like freely survey and take from their body and then uh-huh. the final lines to your talk were i hope someone among the stars will take me in um i wonder i love that line uh, i wonder uh if you have any thoughts about that or any other themes you might have seen that connected the different pieces together
2: yeah i mean we didn't try to uh, well maybe the performers there knew each other's work ahead of time i didn't know their work and i um we did not i think we did not talk about the specific pieces ahead of time so it was really interesting but but leanne as a curator of that uh event might have you know very well known that there would be cross fertilization or common the intersecting themes between our pieces so i was um happy and maybe a little surprised at how well it all came together. Um, I, in particular, was really struck by <clears throat> both. I think I love I love Janine's piece. I. I I mean, it was performance art, right? And yeah. as with most performance art, I half get it. and I'm not sure I totally get it. <laughs> so, but it, but it, it, I loved it. Like it was exhilarating. It was really fun. Um, it was beautiful, you know, whether I totally understand it or not, it was a really beautiful, uh, compelling piece. and I really appreciated it. I think with the drag performers, uh, Tonche Redvers and uh, Ames Val. Um, if I'm pronouncing those correctly, <clears throat> I really was struck by the way in which they both had these images or sounds that were very starkly conveying the violence and horror of settler colonialism uh, and its uh, its violence against children, uh, against indigenous gender systems, and yet they were also showing um, the kind of joy that comes in uh persisting uh and insisting on indigenous uh indigenous gender indigenous uh practices so they were they were both juxtaposing i think in their performances that that, an accounting of that horror not turning away from it you know not downplaying the the violence of settler colonialism but also just putting out there for us look look at this joy look at this persistence Um, Ames Val showed a transition uh, in their sort of. Um, I think I think it was a personal kind of transition about dealing with uh, a custody battle for a child and you know coming into their own as somebody who is in transition and and taking joy again in their body and their positionality. It was really beautiful. And Tanchai Redverse, I think, starts out in a kind of in-your-face. Uh, Pushing back against um, the violent edifice of settler colonialism, but both of them have this at the end come to really convey the joy in 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 resisting uh, what was imposed. So it's not only it's not just anger or pushing back or or that kind of thing. There was actually joy. There was fun. I, I really appreciated that, and they were just great performers. All all three of them were really just really fun to watch. So I really it was nice for me. I felt. Um, I mean, this is not a, a traditionally academic talk I give, but it definitely felt more academic compared to what they were doing. <laughs> so yeah. I felt, re- but, but that's not, I mean, that's not totally true because you, you can see the kind of, the, I think the theory informing what they do. They were very intellectual pieces, what all three of them did for sure. But I guess I just felt a little bit less glitzy and more academic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, but that's yeah. fine. I really, I enjoyed it. Yeah. And, it, and it was a challenge for me to come back and get my momentum and voice back after I was kind of disarmed by watching their performances you know I was like oh wait a minute now I have to get back into my my uh mode of talking and it wasn't easy so
0: right yeah um okay uh the last question I had was uh this the phrase good relations you used several times uh-huh. in your talk uh-huh. uh huh um d- d- did the, does this have, like, a particular set meaning to you, or... Um... Uh, you know, I mean, I'd have to look
2: back at the exact lines uh, and how I used it. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think how I, I mean, how I would define that. I think it would depend on the situation. I think um, more than that we're always good to one another, quote-unquote, you know, because we can, we can have different definitions of what constitutes good. Um, In fact, one of the indigenous studies theorists that I refer to on this topic is my colleague at the University of Alberta, Jessica Kolopenek, who has um, an article on how the settler state wants us to be good according to their definition. But their definition of good is juxtaposed against the bad heathen Indian and this is why we need to question what the settler thinks is good and what it is to be a good citizen and she finishes this article on bad biocitizenship by asking us to question the state, question consumerism and capitalism, question being a good citizen and she says we should be bad. So when I talk about good relations I'm not necessarily talking about what the settler state thinks is good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. yeah. I, think it is, I think it's more um, You know, I think uh, I'm trying to think about that that uh, those set of performances that night. I think to be good to one another would be include paying attention to one another, um, working at understanding one another, even if we can't completely understand, and being open for new knowledge to come. I mean, I think it really is about being attentive to one another, um, and attentive to. Maybe some of the gaps as well, and forgiving of some of the gaps, uh, gaps in understanding uh, some of the differences that we don't quite yet uh, understand about one another. But yeah, I'd have to look at the text exactly. But I'm not, it's not some kind of moral imperative, I think, in the way that Christianity or the state uh, gives us moral imperatives. It's not about being virtuous. Um, I think it's really about. Um, being attentive to one another. it, it also probably involves, and I, I saw, you know, signs of this in the community there, feeding one another, you know, uh, listening to one another. I mean, I think it's a, it's a good conversation to have what do we mean by good relations, and, and we don't necessarily always mean the same thing. And so I, But I do want to emphasize that I think being good and being a good person does not involve uh, all of the values that the settler state imposed on us about being good. I think most of the values they imposed are actually really bad. Uh, so
0: yeah no totally would you have um maybe a a a different term or something that sums up kind of your approach to kind of relationality i guess which a lot of your work is about uh yeah no
2: i mean i don't yeah i don't have a more specific term Mm -hmm. you know like i know at the university of alberta we have this prairie relationality network that's been started that's uh involving uh indigenous scholars from across the prairies, and, you know, they'll use the framework of Otoin, you know, which I'm still coming to understand. I I don't have, we don't have a term like that, where I come from. I don't use a term like that, but I'm happy to think about other frameworks, um, and see how they intersect with the kinds of terms that I use. Um, so.
0: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any other thoughts?
2: Oh, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, no, I can't, you know, I think one of the things I'm constantly surprised by, though, is, um, you know, when you live, you know, when you are yourself, you don't necessarily see how others see you, and I am constantly surprised um, that I get asked to come speak to such diverse communities. Uh, I, I, I think, oh, how do they know my work, or wow, I'm so honored, <laughs> you know, I'm, I, but I am constantly surprised. Uh, and I, you know, I was, I, I really, really enjoyed myself. I learned so much uh, going to Whitehorse. I would love to come back. I told my daughter about it. She's a, uh, environmental studies person she's uh, loves to be out on the land and so I think uh, she would really really appreciate it there Um, and so yeah I really I I would love to come back and I was uh, slightly surprised and honored to be asked to come participate with all of those really talented performers um, on the same stage with them so
0: yeah uh, I
2: a, yeah it was it was a great evening it was really good and, and Leanne Charlie's poem was just brilliant I was really very uh, very courageous and also funny and uh really well done so yeah I enjoyed the whole evening
0: yeah okay um well thanks so much I hope you have a good rest of your Thank you. Saturday it was yeah. nice to meet you yes it was nice to meet okay. you too. okay all right good luck then bye All right. Development Observation aka Devo Obs. My aim for this is to be an ongoing series where we go construction site by construction site, condo by condo, um with in-depth looks into some of the larger developments happening in town. Who are these mysterious forces that initiated their building? Um and are they forces of good? No. Uh that's just a uh, j- not a journalistic question Um, and as Dr. TallBear pointed out the word good doesn't really help things much when so much can be projected uh, by who's using it and how so we're not expecting any like um, moral revelations about the nature of the developers behind these projects it's uh, more just aimed to at most just put into the public record the names of people whose identities Maybe they'd prefer to be obscured behind the layers of bureaucracy, and yeah. And then it's also to kind of build this map or kind of geography of the housing and building developments happening in town, kind of identify connections and patterns. So the white the population of white horse is obviously. Ex- exploding um which has offered this kind of gold rush for investors and developers seeking to capitalize on the you know this lucrative um kind of prediction for the continued rise in rents and housing prices and food prices um there's a lot of opportunity here for people with the resources uh to do something about it and then um for the government's part But the city, the government of Yukon, and the federal, the feds, are offering um, large incentives or loans um, to builders for developments that address um, affordable and accessible housing, if only in part, uh, even if it's only a percentage of the units in a building. Yeah, so that's the latter part is something we'll explore a little more in uh, other weeks uh, but first um, this segment is going to be on the loft on second and uh, on the realtors uh, Coldwell Banker Redwood Realtors they always capitalize the loft so you always have to say the, the loft uh, on second, uh, it's also, I think colloquially known as, um, KFC towers, uh, which is, is it's two, two, four, zero second Avenue beside KFC right on that curving, uh, corner of second. And so it's only recently finished the construction of its second to fifth floors, I think some people, some. People have moved into there, but the uh, penthouse and uh, first floor commercial are are still seem in construction at the moment. And this is despite first breaking ground uh, for building in June of 2021. So it has been a process for them. So they have a Facebook page, which is managed by, I believe, the realtors there. And so a lot of this information is pulled directly from there. <clears throat> But um, to describe the building as they describe it, the loft offers, uh, quote, brand new luxury condos in the heart of downtown features include LED lights, high ceilings, quartz countertops, quality vinyl plank flooring, tiled shower tub, unique cove accent lighting, plus many more. Directly across from the Yukon River with walking trails in Shipyards Park, offering sliding hills, skating, summer markets, and local events. Who needs a car when you can walk to everything you need? Groceries, coffee shops, restaurants, shops are just a few steps away. Your open concept layout is bright, airy, with lots of lights, mountain, and river views. Don't miss this incredible pre-built price. Fun fact that I learned while uh, researching this, this area of town is actually has a specific name slash subdivision name and that's called henny and uh, i think that goes about from uh, across from the Quanlin mall uh to where about uh this the loft is located around superstore and that's called henny i did not know that um okay the site uh used to be used as a chevron and tire service gas station which meant that the site uh usually that means um the site is contaminated in some way and so that's an extra process for developers to remediate uh, before they can build something there and I, yeah, I want to find out more about that process and who does it and how long it takes. Um, but for now, we only have what I got. Um, so the part of that is also that they're building a underground parking garage, which is one of the only underground parking garages in the territory, as I understand. That That's a lot of concrete to pour. And in the winter, you can't pour concrete so well. So I think this is where a lot of the initial construction delays came up. Um, and it took them quite a while to uh, get under proper way with the construction. Um, so it was announced, this this building and the units were announced in November of 2020. And then in February of 2021, the Facebook uh, post, the they said that they were sold out, um, and then um, by February first, twenty twenty three, they posted. <clears throat> we also have a few one bedrooms that were being saved for the developers' employees slash family and are now being released to the public. Three exclamation marks. Yeah. So I don't know if because of the delays or something that they or they just keep allowing new units to be released. The They kind of continuously um, have had these units going out uh, for sale. Okay, according to the current land registry, uh, 536773 Yukon Inc. owns 34 of the 58 units of the place still. Um, So that's a majority of them. And as with all condos in the territory um it has to be a condo corporation so essentially ownership uh no longer exists with like one single owner but the individual units comprise a board of directors or whatnot um so yeah is kind of nice to think about in principle that um when people are living together that they're um you know forced into working with one another to decide the fate of their uh build collective building um but anyway so five three six seven seven three owns 34 of these units still so i've three possibilities that I had are they're renting, they're planning on renting those units out um, or they're saving them, keeping them off the market and just letting them out one at a time or a few at a time to create this appearance of selling out or demand and, or they're keeping them, a majority of them, so as to retain control over the condo corp for the time being. Um, Yeah, I don't necessarily know if that's like a common practice uh with condo corps and developers but anyways uh so this number company has two directors uh south seth rotundi and peter rotundi seth uh is associated with epic north electric and peter is associated with pcr construction limited so these are assumedly the developers because they're the board of directors on the condominium corporation uh, that owns the condo as well. Um, and then, in addition to this, RT Properties Inc. owns three of the units. Um, so, RT Property is associated with developer Randy Odette. Uh, he's a signing officer representative of RT Properties. Uh, and then, that's also. He's also known as Adet construction, which was previously sued for construction deficiencies on previous condo buildings built in Porter Creek in 2018. And there's a white horse star article about that. Um, Yeah. So, um, I assume my assumption is that, uh, the, the aforementioned, um, uh, companies are associated with the development and construction of the building. And that's sort of they're referring to their Facebook post there, um, that these units were being saved for the developers, employees slash families. Um, all right. So that's kind of the gist of KFC towers. If you were ever curious about that thing looming over you as you, um, curve your wheel slightly to make that turn so this is like 52 essentially non-affordable housing units that are added to the current market um six of which are on the penthouse and i think those were selling asking price was like nine and a half hundred thousand uh asking so almost a million uh for those six penthouse ones yeah so that comes up to wow, we're pretty good here. It's one fifty-four. Um next week with Devo Obs, we're gonna look at the um lot in front of the new child development center across from the tourism and culture uh visitor center there. And that one's gonna be pretty interesting, I think. Despite, you know, it being just a bunch of gravel. There's a lot to a piece of gravel, it turns out. Okay, well, thanks for listening to the Juice Dispatch. Asad will be back um, this week, and we'll have some more interesting stories. Um, Thanks for listening.